Okay, good morning, folks. Um, I hope you're all well and happy on this beautiful morning. I'm also hoping that you're watching on widescreen today um, because this lockdown weight gain is actually a real thing. Um, at the start of lockdown, people were making all kinds of resolutions like climbing the equivalent of Mount Everest on their stairs. And my lockdown dream was to come out the other end with a six pack. Um, but now I have to say my revised aim is just to get back into my work trousers. Anyway, enough about me. Um, this morning we're cracking on with our series looking at the letter of James. And um, for me, this has been an opportunity to try and do a bit of digging and find out more about James, who's quite an enigmatic character in the New Testament. And there's just one thing I want to share with you, um, although there's quite a few, I'm going to have to restrain myself. Um, so James was Jesus' half-brother, but there's no indication in the Gospels that he became a disciple before the resurrection of Jesus. We've got to wait for Acts for a little small note that Mary and Jesus' brothers returned with the Twelve to Jerusalem after Jesus ascended. And Paul mentions uh, James in 1 Corinthians in a list of people who Jesus appeared to after the resurrection. So I've come to the conclusion that James was only converted through a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. And I think that's really cool. Anyway, let's um, skip straight to today's passage. Um, so, Josh, if we could have um, that on the screen, that would be really uh, useful. Thank you. OK, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard about Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. So there we go. James never pulls his punches, does he? Um, he was called James the Just in the early church um, and noticed that it wasn't James the Diplomatic or James the Tactful. However, I hope this morning that as we look through this passage, it will sound more like an encouragement than a warning. So today's talk um, divides into three sections, all linked by the word well. And we're going to be talking about, if we can see this slide, please, Josh. Okay, we're talking about the three wells today. And the first one is waiting well. Okay. And um, he was writing at a time, uh, sorry, the second one is speaking well. No, it isn't, it's behaving well. And the third one is speaking well. So let's um, go to the first of those themes. One of the big themes is that James is encouraging us to wait well. He was writing to a group of Christians who were being persecuted, who were being exploited economically, and the stresses were definitely beginning to show 
in terms of disputes and divisions within the church. And speaking personally, you know, I'm not very good at waiting at all. We are, in fact, the instant generation. We're no longer homo sapiens, but we've evolved into microwave mealman. And even the three minutes of waiting before the ping can seem like an eternity. And of course, the coronavirus has tested our patience. For many of us, this has been a struggle. There have been problems of feeling isolated on the one hand, and on the other hand, problems of living together. Um, and um, it's really posed different questions and challenges for us. Some of us have struggled with mental health issues, some with the virus itself and illness, and there have been other worries about loved ones. And for others, there have been financial concerns and the pain of bereavement. And ironically, this has happened against the backdrop of the sunniest and most beautiful spring that any of us has ever witnessed. Now into this situation, James is telling us to be patient and to stand firm even in the face of suffering. And James is clear that there are helpful ways of waiting, but equally there are ways of waiting which are neither helpful or good. Firstly, there's the waiting of despair. If you remember the advice of Mrs. Job to her husband after his terrible misfortune, she said, why on earth are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? And this lady obviously hadn't heard of the gift of encouragement. Um, however, there were other godly people in the Bible who've gone through periods of spiritual depression, including Elijah, David, Jeremiah and Jonah. There's also a kind of waiting which is the waiting of self-indulgence. And this is at root an expression of hopelessness too. Let's fill our barns and eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And this state can also tip over into exploitation because being excessively wealthy is often at someone else's expense. And the party lifestyle tries to ignore the poor man at the gate. And James really calls out this tendency in his letter as we heard in Jenny's brilliant talk last Sunday. Then there's the waiting of dogged determination, which is where people grit their teeth and push through because they're made of stern stuff. And this is you know, commendable, um, but it can be a little joyless, let's say. But finally, there's the hope, uh, the waiting of hope and anticipation. And this is a waiting of confidence, of excitement and of eager preparation. Now I must confess personally that through the lockdown, I've kind of oscillated between all of these different states, often at a bewildering speed. Sometimes it's been like four seasons in one day. But I have felt God and James urging me towards the latter forms of waiting, towards hope, towards confidence, patience and trust. And I'm believing for excitement, although it hasn't quite dawned yet. Last week, Melinda shared a very powerful verse which I think is key for many of us. And I think we have this on a slide. It's the verse in Isaiah, which says that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow faint. Weary, they will walk and not be faint. Thank you, Josh. Now, James uses farmers as a model of hope. And he talks about the autumn and the spring rains as an illustration. I had to look this one up because agriculture is not my specialist subject. But apparently in Israel, there were two rainy seasons. The first was in the autumn, and this was the seed time, 
when the autumn rain softened the soil and helped the seed to germinate. And the second was the spring rain, which helped the crop to grow and mature and the grain to swell before the spring harvest. And James commends the farmers for quietly going about their work in the confidence that it would yield a crop. In the Old Testament, the autumn and spring rains are symbolic of the covenant faithfulness of God. It's because of God's love and faithfulness that we know that our work will be fruitful. And as Paul says in Corinthians, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Now, notice here that standing firm doesn't mean inactivity. Standing firm is the faith part which leads to work and to a harvest. And that's faith works. That's what we've been talking about this series. Now, James also references Job as an example of perseverance. And I have to say, I think Job is a really puzzling book. I've wrestled with it over many years. But I do think that Job has a number of things to say into the COVID-19 pandemic. The key thing to notice first is that God is not the author of Job's suffering. There is a malicious intelligence in our world who does intend us harm. But this is not God who is full of compassion and mercy towards us. Secondly, this challenges Job's story, challenges the theology of his comforters, so-called friends. Suffering and misfortune are not necessarily signs of personal sin and divine judgment. In the Gospels, Jesus is clear that the blind man's predicament was neither his fault or his parents, but it was an opportunity for God's work to be seen in his life. Jesus was also clear that the Galilean pilgrims who were murdered by Pilate and the 19 who died when the um, Tower of Siloam fell were not greater sinners than the rest of us. So victims of moral and natural evil don't necessarily have it coming to them. Thirdly, if we're seeing Job as a role model, it suggests that there is some real scope for us to express our frustrations and pain to God. A significant proportion of the Psalms are Psalms of lament or even complaint, which can be compatible with faith and perseverance. So long as we're taking these feelings and thoughts to God and expressing them in our relationship with God and not allowing them to turn us away from God, then this will not be futile and not be wasted. And there's a a psalm which says that God has um, stored up our tears in a bottle and he is concerned about everything we feel, even the painful and the negative things. Now, for me, the resolution to Job's story doesn't come with the restitution of his property or having lots more children at the end of the story. In the midst of his suffering, Job cries out, some incredible uh, words. And I think we have a slide for these, Josh. Um, For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. So when James is talking about what the Lord finally brought about, I believe he's referring to the coming of King Messiah to the word becoming flesh and revealing God to to us, 
to the one who's taken our sin and suffering upon himself. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, remember, remember during her pregnancies, um, when Wendy was out of the morning sickness phase and she was getting close to the drop zone, she had these sudden bursts of energy and purpose, which resulted in lots of decorating around the house and basically buying up mother care. And it was clearly a deeply biological urge, the excitement at the prospect of new arrivals, inspiring huge energy and focus. And that for me was a wonderful illustration of faith and hope leading to good works. There's also uh, another wonderful picture in the New Testament from Revelation. This pictures the church as the betrothed bride of Christ waiting for the wedding. And this is the imagery that Caleb brought out so beautifully in his recent teaching on the Lord's Supper. And this is what the Revelation passage says. Again, Josh, if you've got that handy. Thank you. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. I love this so much. Notice that even the good things that we do for Jesus have been given to us. They are gifts of God's grace as well. And as John highlighted a few weeks ago, these verses from Ephesians, which says, for it's by grace that you've been saved. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So despite whatever frustrations or worries we face, we are the bride of Christ and we can make ourselves ready with hope, with excitement, with joy, because we know how the story ends. We can make ourselves beautiful and reflect the love of God in this dark world. And in the words of this television reality show, as a church, we can indeed say yes to the dress. Okay, now behaving well and speaking well may not take as long, just in case you're worried about the Sunday lunch, but behaving well. I remember as children growing up, we were fairly well behaved, at least when our parents were watching us. Probably our worst behaviour was uh, re reserved for when mum and dad were busy doing something else, maybe, or maybe they were away slightly longer than we expected. Um, please don't ring social services. This was definitely in the day back before safeguarding had been invented. But in these kind of scenarios, we could rapidly descend into a kind of Lord of the Flies situation where the competition for power and possessions descended into verbal and sometimes physical violence. However, at the sound of the car outside or the keys in the door, it was amazing how fast rooms could be tidied and criminating evidence hid. Now, James seems to be confronting some similar dynamics in the young churches that he's writing to. There seem to have been some egos, some power struggles and factions going on with grumbling, bad-mouthing, slipping into the church culture. And James warns the church that we have no right to judge each other or slander each other. And he uses the return of Jesus as a way of refocusing us on the only one 
who does have the right to judge. I have to say as a church that we've been immensely blessed by our leadership that's shown, you know, huge humility, mutual respect and harmony over the last years. And this has really been foundational to the health of the church. And many of us perhaps have experienced less happy situations um, which teach us not to take this peace and unity for granted. Um, In Ephesians 4, Paul says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And when he says make every effort, Paul's clear that maintaining this bond of peace isn't easy and it requires us to work hard at it. Um, But this effort is absolutely worth it. We all know the passage in Psalm 133, um, if you've got this one, Josh, where it says um, how good and pleasant it is when people, when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down Aaron's beard. Thank you, Josh. So today, I'm afraid I don't have any precious oil, but the girls did give me this um, um well, what is it? It's a Christmas present. It's called L'Oreal Men Expert Barber Club Short Beard and Face Moisturizer. Okay, so I'm going to apply some of that now. Um, and if you have your scratch cards handy, scratch and sniff cards, um, you can have a go at those now just to get the full olfactory experience. And remember, church, it's obviously because we're worth it. Okay, back to the slides. Thank you, Josh. And Paul puts it like this to the Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. And if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Okay. So just see here the, the the emphasis on God's chosen people that were dearly loved, that we are the betrothed bride of Christ, and that encouragement to clothe ourselves. Yet again, Paul is saying here, church, say yes to the dress. And finally, let's move on to speaking well. And James says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heavens or earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. Now, these words really echo Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. Jesus says not to swear on anything we value, because in doing so, we cheapen that thing. If I were to swear, for instance, on my mother's life, it would be clear that I was valuing her less than whether somebody believed me or not. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the devil. Now, in this passage, I don't think that James is threatening us that a single slip of the tongue, um, you know, letting out some infelicity of language will open a personal trapdoor down to hell. If that was the case, then I'm pretty confident that many of us wouldn't be here still. Not me, for sure. Not Wendy. And not 50% of our kids. Um, But what James is saying here sits within his bigger emphasis on taming the tongue, which is all about exercising judgment and self-control when we speak and using our words to glorify God. 
So today's passage is reminding this of us that, that this includes how we speak. He's talking specifically about swearing oaths here. And he's talking about using God's name almost as a guarantee of our own honesty. You still hear people saying things like, I swear to God, or I swear on my mother's grave. And James is saying that this is kind of blasphemous to use God's name to persuade people that we're telling the truth. If we have to swear in the first place, this doesn't reflect well on our honesty. And it's also clearly that showing that we don't really value God's name if we do that. If we're using God's name as a kind of credit card or just for dramatic effect. Now, James uses the phrase above all at the start of this guidance because how we respect God's name, the regard that we have for who God is, should run through the way that we speak. The third commandment says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the Jews of Jesus' day were so worried about breaking this commandment that they refused to take the name of God on their lips at all. Now, as his children, God wants, as our father, he wants us to call on his name. But when we speak about God, we should do it in a way that reflects how much we love and revere him. God himself values his name and his word. In Psalm 138, it says, I will bow down towards your holy temple and praise your name for your love and faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And the name in Hebrew thought is shorthand for the identity of a person, who they really are. And the word of God throughout scripture is an expression for the self-revelation of God to all creation and to his people. In Nehemiah 9 verse 5, it, the Levites um, say to the people, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be ex exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, not many people um, swear oaths these days, and it's actually ironic that the main context where it still happens is in a court of law, where people swear on the Bible to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Um, and part of the irony of this is that people are swearing on a book which tells them not to swear at all. And this practice is a relic from the common law established in the Middle Ages when most people couldn't read. And originally there wasn't a criminal penalty for perjury because the belief was that we would be answerable to God having sworn an oath. And the legal penalty for perjury was only introduced much later. And nowadays, in our plural society, there are a range of holy books in courts, including the Quran and the Guru Granth Sahib, for people of different faiths to swear on. And there's also, thankfully, an option not to swear at all, but simply to affirm that you will tell the truth, which I think is clearly preferable. In the New Testament, the positive teaching about how we speak can be summed up in two words, uh, love and truth. And this is Paul's emphasis in Ephesians 4 and 5, where he says, and speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And it's so good that Paul links truth and love together here, because I'm not sure how many of us could face the truth about ourselves unless it was expressed with grace and compassion. And clearly this 
is totally in line with the character of Jesus, who comes to us from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has modelled this to us, and because of his example, we can also model it to the world. We do need this so much at the moment because we live in a deeply divided culture where words quite often are weaponized, and it's a culture where blame is the first recourse when things go badly. And in this context, the first casualties are truth and love. But as Christians, we're called to be countercultural and to announce the kingdom of God by the way that we speak to others, to each other, and to God. There's a really um, handy mindfulness exercise, which is also aimed at taming the tongue. And it's an acrostic. I don't know if you can find this slide, Josh, and just pop it on for us, please. And it uses the word think and invites us to ask five questions about how we speak. Yeah, so that's, there we are. So um, as you can see, the five questions are, if we're thinking about what we're going to say, is it true? Is it helpful? And clearly some things which are true aren't necessarily helpful. The I stands for, is it, is it I? Is it my place to actually say this? And the N is now. Is now the right time to say it? Um, and certainly not if um, somebody's a little low blood sugar. That's clearly not the time to say things that are challenging. Finally, the K, is it kind? Um, so I think that, for me, has been a really helpful way of kind of checking um, my speech and just making me mindful about whether the things that I say are you know, appropriate and positive and good. So thank you, folks. That's just about it from me this morning. Just a very brief recap before I hand back. James is encouraging us to be firstly waiting well and preparing ourselves for that wedding where once again we do say yes to the dress. He's encouraging us to behave well and we are pouring the oil on Aaron's beard because we're worth it. And finally, we're speaking well and we're thinking before we speak and we're speaking in truth and love. Okay, thank you so much for listening and I hope I haven't run over too long this morning. Okay, thank you.